someone else but not for me Our love was out to get me That's the way it seemed Disappointment haunted all my dreams Then I saw her face Now I'm a believer Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones, and today we, what, Bill? I mean, we are we've we've floated back and forth between 21st century and 16th century events. Yeah, yeah. and um, I'm I pretty much you may be floating. I pretty much just stayed there over the last couple of weeks in the 16th century. <laughs> yeah, periodically, I come you know to go get pizza or something, and, but most for most part, I'm in some previous century right now. Well, I mean, there's you know. Centuries are... I'm existentially time travel. I like that. <laughs> a little existentialism never hurts yeah, anybody. never hurt anybody. So today we want to talk a little bit about Luther and Calvin. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think um, something about, I guess initially you're the Mockingcast uh, Reformation broadcast has kind of set us on a series of examining and re-examining both the Reformation and its ongoing legacy. And... In some levels, uh, you might be saying we might be looking, you know, picking around for some of the weaknesses and how it affects contemporary church life, piety, and such. Yeah, and one of the things I think, it, it, I wonder how many evangelicals, like conservative Protestants, which is a huge force in American religious life, shapes American elections, shapes, right. I wonder how many of them would actually be uncomfortable with what Luther actually thought about the nature of faith and yeah, yeah. how how one is made right with God. Yeah, I think a lot of them would be. Uh, and I think a lot of them use the language of justification by faith alone, but have a very different meaning than he intended. And of course, when somebody has that many volumes of a work, it's hard to. <laughs> right. No, 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 that he wasn't in process. But I think there's an implication. I mean, it's funny. Some of our colleagues are railing against evangelicalism and the political thing and uh, and are calling and declaring the end of evangelicalism, yada, yada, yada. But I think whatever the problem with an evangelicalism, that it may be expressing itself politically or not, it's still, a, I think, a theological, spiritual problem. And uh, part of it may even be the approach to faith. Yeah, yeah. So we, I sent you an article that actually... Uh I have read, I'd read this article a couple of times in the past, and most recently, last week, I think Benston Shelton, who I think listens to our stuff, is a wonderful Episcopal clergyman, rector somewhere in Virginia, about 30 minutes south of Charlottesville. He posted it, and I remembered how much I liked it, and I reread it, and I sent it to you, and it's by Phil Carey, uh, and the title is, Why Luther is Not Quite Protestant, and it appeared originally in Pro Ecclesia. Journal you and I have both used to read regularly. Yeah. Is it defunct? I don't know if it's still out. What year was this article? This is fall of 2005. Yeah, I don't know if it's still out. But it actually, it's an article that's worth looking up. Uh, you're going to post a link? Yeah, I will post a link to it. And uh, I agree with you. It's worth reading multiple times because I think it's very profound. So, Carrie says that, that the difference between Luther and other Protestants emerges because scripture contains more than one divine promise, and it makes a difference which kind of promise is taken as fundamental. Protestant theology typically bases Christian faith on a universal promise such as, whoever believes in Christ will be saved, 
On this basis, the logic of faith leads to the certainty of salvation. So the, if we were going to make a syllogism, this is, you're giving like a sort of logic primer here too. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, I remember on Robert Harrison's Entitled Opinions, there, were t- there was a Hegel scholar on there. He said, well, one of my colleagues says that the Learning logic from Hegel would be like taking culinary tips from Jeffrey Dahmer. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that might be the same. Yeah, it might be the same thing, yeah. Uh, He says that, you know, major premise would be whoever believes in Christ is saved. Right. The minor premise is I believe in Christ. So the conclusion is I am saved. Right. Now, he says Luther's formulation is a little more like this. Christ told me, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The minor premise is, Christ never lies, but only tells the truth. Conclusion, I am baptized, i.e., I have new life in Christ. So here, he says, the major premise is a sacramental word of grace, and the minor premise is based on the truthfulness of God, a favorite of Luther's themes, uh, saying, you know, quoting Paul in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar, as an admonition to put no faith, to put faith in no word but God's word. Yeah, so so it really it's it's an interesting thing. It's it's nuanced because I think sometimes Calvinist thinking, in terms of kind of covering that base, will put it all into the sovereignty of God. In other words, yeah. So that, as a matter of fact, this came out at a Bible study I was teaching last night. Um, that because we are chosen, and then and Calvin sometimes or the Calvinists leave out chosen in Christ. They just say because God chooses us, therefore. You know, his sovereign will has to be and will be done. Uh, and it's through this unmerited grace and favor that we're chosen. And it's not so much, you know, the classic tulip of Calvinism, the P is the perseverance of the saints. It actually is the perseverance of God. So, in other words, God's will is done. He chooses it. It's solely, it's a sole act of God's grace. It's a sole act of God's sovereign choice. And whatever he chooses, Whatever he decides, it happens. Yeah, and I mean, there is a strong, I mean, maybe it's probably, you could argue that union with Christ is the central doctrine in Calvin, at least in the Institutes, but I don't know it's the central doctrine for a lot of Calvinists. No, I, I would agree, too. I think that's, I think the Christ, and I, I, we've, I think we mentioned it in a previous broadcast, I think Calvin, you know, one of the problems with, I think, with Calvin is that he moves his doctrine of election into the doctrine of God as opposed to in earlier editions of the of the institute it was around as the, the doctrine of Christ which i that's a nuance some of you that may just be some you know doesn't make a big deal but those of you who have studied it realize that is a that is a huge move yeah and what, one of you know for carry luther's understanding of faith it's not as though it's not personal because you do have to know that christ right. it's 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 pro nobis for us or pro me for me for me right but my faith in my faith is not important i can actually have something like an unreflective faith he calls it right so my faith doesn't play into it's not part of the gospel in the sense of if the law is for luther is what stands over and against us and shows us that we're sinners. And the gospel, I mean, the, I heard some Lutherans say the old adage is, the law says do, the gospel says done. And the gospel are the promises that are done for us. Right. For Luther, our faith isn't part of the gospel. It, it, it's, it, it, it's a receptacle, right. but, but, but it doesn't, you don't need to have any faith in your faith. Right. You, but you do have to have a strong faith that Christ is God, 
That right. he is who the scriptures say he is. And that Christ is trustworthy. Yeah, and that there's a continued real presence in things like, I mean, Luther makes a lot of the sacrament of penance. When you're told you're absolved, you, for Calvin, you know, Calvin on penance, and Carrie talks about this, for Calvin, it's like you're absolved if you have true faith to receive the absolution. So it sort of takes away right. with one hand, it gives with one hand and takes away with the other. Where for Luther, it's just, no, that sacramental word is speaking the word of Christ. That's true, that Christ is a friend of sinners, forgives sinners, he's an advocate for sinners. You can be up and down, depressed. Your biorhythms can be wherever they are. Psychologically, <laughs> you know, you might have had a good day, a bad day. But that, your faith is not determinative. When you're, with justification by faith, it's not, you're not, ju- you're not justified by your faith, by faith in your faith. It's the faith that clings to Christ and his promises alone. To, to the object, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that might, might be interesting, because one of the things Kerry argues is that Luther's more, still more Catholic, maybe small c, than uh, big c, in terms of, of connected to the sacramental tradition of the church. In reality, I think you could argue that whereas Calvinism sometimes, and later Protestantism, empties the sacraments of any kind of, of, of real power, what Luther is doing, he wants to keep the power in the sacraments. He just wants to take the authority away from the church. In other words, so the other words, the sacramental power of baptism and the Eucharist is still there. It's just directly mediated by Christ, not by the church. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. I think that Luther doesn't want them to be any less objective. And again, that's where it's interesting, right? Because for, I wonder, once you go down Calvin's road, and again, there's a huge, huge sacramental Calvinist revival in North America today. People like Peter Lightheart, Jim Jordan, you can find it at Calvin College, you can find it all over the place. You find it in pockets of the RCA. I mean, it's, there are a lot of Calvinists who are taking incredibly seriously Calvin's insistence that Eucharist should be at least weekly, a much more regular sort of liturgical piety. But the question is, if you get to that point where reflective faith is important, where, where there's a twofold faith, not just faith in the fidelity of God and his promises in the word, but also faith that I have faith in the fidelity of the promises. Does that, like, I wonder, can you really have any kind of objective power like Luther thinks is is significant and important? I I just, out of the gate, are you handicapped? Yeah, it might even be instead of listening to the Word of God, you're listening for the Word of God. You're trying to find it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. as opposed to it actually being there in a kind of objective way, which, by the way, I always rail against that. I always use my, I always use the preposition, listen to. Yeah. Now, say this in a different way, because some people may be having trouble following what you mean by reflective faith. It, to find that, maybe flesh that out a little bit more. Well, I'll, I'll just say, like, I'll give you one more syllogism. I love these syllogisms. <laughs> uh, Carrie says, let's look at how Calvinists treat the, and, and lots of Calvinists, you and I both do a confession of sin every week in our churches. Yes. And assurance of pardon. Well, Carrier says the major premise for Calvin is something like Christ promises absolution of sin to those who believe in him. The minor premise is I believe in Christ. And then conclusion, I am absolved of my sin. Now for Luther, it works a little more like this. Major premise, Christ says, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Minor premise is Christ never lies, but only tells the truth. Conclusion, I am absolved of my sin. Now both of them end with the same conclusion. But what is the minor premise? Well, the, it, the, the, the premise is, uh, I, 
is either I believe in Christ or Christ never lies. Right. And it, again, even the major premise, Christ promises absolution of sins to those who believe in him, whereas Luther's is, Christ says, you know, that, that in, the, in the word of the gospel, over centuries, Christ continues to speak the word of forgiveness to sinners. So it's all rooted in the reliability of Christ and the word he speaks through his church. Right. Whereas for Calvin, even in the major premise, it's still tied to, hey, to those who believe. Right. So the, the, what I mean by reflective faith is for where, like, you know, if you, if you go to a conservative Protestant church in America, an evangelical church, how do you know you're saved? Well, I was born again. I, had, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm conscious. I still have a living faith. I've backslidden. Now I've come back. You always have to have a sort of spiritual barometer on. Right. And the moment that you are really in an ambiguous place where faith is concerned, you don't really know if you're saved. Where for Luther, you know you're baptized. You've been taught the promises. You know, if you're saying, well, I don't know. I mean, this is, I, I've raised some, I have some intellectual struggles, some existential struggles, some, some things that maybe, well, just look to Christ. Right. You know, do you still trust that Christ is who he says he is, that he, that he is? the Messiah of God, and that he speaks a word of promise to you? Yeah, well, then you're a Christian. You're, you're, you're as Christian today as you were yesterday. Like, yeah, you stand on your baptism. Yeah, you, 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 so I think that that, I think if that, if you, if you, if, if somebody said, like, let's say an evangelist is working the airport lounge. Well, you don't even have to say, I mean, I grew up in churches where we had evangelists on a regular basis. Yeah, and, and if they say, and you say, and they say, are you a Christian, Boer? And you say, well, I was baptized, and, you know, and I continue to trust that, Christ has, you know, united me to him and forgives my sins. Well, but when did you, you know, that's not, that yeah, wouldn't be enough. That enough I mean, that would, that, that would sound too much like you're mouthing something impersonal. Yeah, I have a Bible. I've kept it that has in it a paper that says, Bill, Bill Bohr received the assurance of his salvation, such and such a date, such and such a time. And that was, and it was interesting what I was told. Now, this is something you can always go back to and stand on. So you're standing on a experience at a particular place and time. For me, I was nine or 10 at the time. time. And you can see why, you know, for instance, you had the phenomena of burning out or the, you know, the burned out regions where, you know, you're, there's revivalism again and again, you have to get born again and again and again. You also see why you drift into kind of a, I I think in part a made up doctrine of eternal security, uh, an unbiblical doctrine of eternal security, because you know, uh, f- for the fractured Calvinists, whether this be, you know, the three-point Baptist Calvinists or two-point Baptist Calvinists, and a lot of fundamentalists, you know, have a couple points of Calvin, usually total depravity and, pers- you know, and uh, eternal security. But you can see why the doctrine of eternal security is actually created as a way to, um, to try to ward off the kind of insecurity that happens when you begin to doubt that initial experience. But what you end up doing is really, you have to throw out certain passages in the Bible that warn us about falling away, or you end up speculating in the realms of the eternal decrees of God. And I think those are both ultimately unbiblical and unhelpful places to go. By the way, I hope that piece of paper you have in that Bible is laminated. It's not, so it's decaying with time. I would get to Staples today <laughs> and get that laminated. Well, you know, is it really interesting? And I think the fact that um, in many ways, I think my experience as a youth, child and as a youth probably paralleled in some sense as, you know, as 
Puritan Christians who were, you know, trying to figure out whether or not they were the elect or not. The so, halfway covenant, not the halfway yeah. covenant. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a sense where, um, I mean, I I knew that the revivalism stuff was excessive. I figured that out pretty early as a kid, and that there was manipulation going on. I often would spend, you know, when they would say everyone, you know, everyone close their eyes and bow their head. Well, me and my buddy, we were in the back with our eyes open, looking yeah. around. <laughs> Matter, Sinners. Matter of fact, periodically when the revival, the evangelist was going on and on and said, we're going to wait until someone raises their hand. We sometimes just raised our hand to get out of there. Um, so, I, I, I mean, again, I saw the excess. And of course, you, you know, I mean, you read Charles Finney's book on, I mean, it gets to the point where you can actually come up with a methodology in order to, to move people to conversion, which, by the way, seems to be the same outline that many contemporary Christian musicians or many worship teams follow yeah, to Finney. manipulate what we call the spirit. By the way, can I just say, I hate any song that says, Lord, we need more of you. May every chorus that says, God, we just need more of you, they should be banned. And anyone that sings them should have to spend some time on a rack of the Inquisition. I, I'm, I, I'm with that on the just prayers. God, if you would just do this, go big or stay home. I mean, when you're praying, like, ask for the whole enchilada. Well, the whole point is somehow, you know, all right, God divvies up little pieces of God's self. Yeah. Okay, if you guys sing this chorus 15 more times, I'm going to show up a little bit more. You, what they need is a course in, the, in divine simplicity. Yeah, it's interesting, something you said a couple minutes ago about how something, there is a certain Calvinist move, I think, that creates the problem assurance. I think as Nietzsche says, that somewhere some pre-Socratic, some of that era made the mind-body problem. Yeah. Right. And now it's something we couldn't get a day without thinking about. Right. But before that, it's not a problem. Like, there may be some sense that there are layers to your reality, but like, it's not a problem. But once you frame it as a pro- it's framed as a problem then to solve, and you have a whole sort of, it, it, you have a whole, you know, a legacy of thinking about that problem in light of the fact that now it's a problem. And I, th- I think, same thing, I think for someone like Luther, who accepts a sort of Augustinian bondage of the will approach, and is sure that we're saved by faith alone. But for him, like the, the perseverance thing, it's just not something you, you, you think day by day. You right. think about persevering today, right? not persevering for eternity. But again, I think if, if my faith is part of the content of faith, my subjective experience of how much faith I've got today, then, well, do I really have faith? Well, then, but if I even got the spark of faith, it must be eternally given to me from God. So they, then, you know, I must be part of the elect, and if I can figure out that I've got the intertestament, but then it's funny because Calvin also says, like in places like he, in Hebrews where they say, you know, if they go away, you know, that you can't return, you can't repent after a certain point. Calvin's like, well, you know, then God gives some of the reprobate false faith. And really, as a pastor, you can't tell. I mean, it looks like the Spirit. It's a temporal gift of the Spirit that looks and smells like election, but it's still reprobation. And I'm thinking... This is tyrannical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you know, I think sometimes Calvin's, uh, the shadow of Calvin and bad days of Calvin enters into his theology. I it did have bad hemorrhoids. Oh, uh, well, that'll do it. I, and, and, and you can, the grumpy late Luther and his digestive system, we can see that. You know, one thing, and in many ways, uh, maybe a majority of evangelicals are more influenced by the Wesleyan tradition on this issue. And, and what's interesting you know, Jacob Arminius reacts to this scholastic hyper-Calvinism. And really, if you read Arminius, 
which I don't know how many Armenians actually read him, but his is attempt to get back to a little more primitive Christianity. I mean, because he's not in the early church, his, he can't hold some of the tensions, but his is a reaction to this kind of hyper-Calvinism. John Wesley, who follows in this tradition, is actually there's kind of two strains, more than two strains, but there's two major strains that Arminianism takes. One is liberalism. One is kind of an embracing of modernity that lifts up human ability. John Wesley, you know, I think is a corrective both to Calvinism and to that by trying to really uh, go back to a pre-Augustinian kind of view of salvation and, and the idea that being a Christian is kind of this daily abiding that, uh, you know, we have, to, we have to live in grace. We're called to live the Christian life. What I think is unfortunate about the legacy of that is not only in his desire to correct the extremes of Calvinism, he brings into the uncertainties and insecurities of pre-Augustinian understands the normality of the Christian life. So you end up with this kind of holiness movement and this kind of sense of you, you bring in a whole new kind of psychological shadow into the understanding of what it means to try to live the Christian life. And it makes sense that a reaction to that are all the Pentecostals. <laughs> so there, there's a sense of reacting to kind of the rationality. Then they're, they're looking for this new experience. And I think one of the reasons you get, you know, the second experience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then some groups you get a third work and a fourth work, you know, is because when your theology is based on experience, it doesn't take. So you have to go back and get a, get a new one. Yeah, and I, I think this might be, maybe we'll do this in our next podcast. We've got a whole slew of things we want to talk about of late. But at the end of this article, he talks about Karl Barth, and Barth is definitely on the Lutheran and piety-wise, right? right? Yes. It, so, I mean, you know, he and Bruner, I mean, Bruner had, was plagued by doubt, and, and he would write to Bart early, like, right. how are you so confident? He's like, I'm full of doubts too, and we'll just look to Christ. And then Bruner goes, I think you spend time in the Oxford Movement in England, and basically he's going to like intervarsity small groups, right. he's singing hymns, and they're studying the Bible. Bible he's like, courses. He's like, he's like oh, Carlos is so great, and I, I really, like, I, I know now that I know the comfort of faith. And Bart was really pissed and just writes back to him, Emil, we are not pietists. Like, <laughs> but, you know, Carrie says that, but Bart doesn't have the kind of Luther's Catholic sacramentology, at least not late, especially not later. Oh, no, he, in, in his he work. becomes a Zwingli. Yeah, you know. there's something. So Carrie asks that. And by the way, that is a dirty word. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, he says that, um, you know, Bart has been less successful in his campaign against the Protestant proclivity accentuated in classical liberal Protestantism, and now many versions of evangelical and charismatic renewal, to base faith on the experience of faith. I myself am a Protestant who shares Bart's allergy, as he often calls it, to the liberal turn to experience, but I find his conceptual alternative, an actualism or event ontology, which gives nothing external to cling to, an impressive but ultimately unpersuasive failure. Yeah, and maybe put that into that last part about the actuality put that into layman's terms so basically that you know and this is the truth of you know when when peter when bart would say look at matthew 16 and peter confesses the christ that jesus is the christ and jesus doesn't say okay finally there's one half-witted student in the worst adult sunday school class that ever lived <laughs> he's like this is a miracle flesh and you know flesh and blood haven't revealed to you this is from heaven and so there's a sense that which even if you're standing in front of the historical jesus there has to be an unveiling. You don't just, he doesn't right. glow. He doesn't look divine. And right. so Bart thinks with scripture, anytime God comes to us, there has to be 
some kind of, for it to be really revelatory, there has to be an encounter that can't be bottled up. It can't, but God has to actually act um, and make the word real again and again. Carrie thinks this is interesting. It's interesting in light of some of the bar- problems Bart's dealing with conceptually with Immanuel Kant and things like this, which we could, again, talk about in another podcast. But ultimately, his question is, can you stay, can you, because Bart wants to say, put your faith in Christ. You know, you don't put your faith in your faith. I mean, right. Bart's, but if you're, if you're kind of hedging the bets on objectivity and sacraments, are you ultimately, it, 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 is it, a failed attempt, and Carrie thinks it is, and that's an interesting question. Yeah, and maybe you know, for further discussion, you and I before the podcast started, is one of the implications of you know the vast majority of Protestants following Calvin uh, in this understanding of faith that on one level you could argue that the you know the Protestant understanding of faith is actually a work in uh, in some kind of disguise. Yes, and don't be saved by works. <laughs> <laughs> So that uh, maybe part of the problem in evangelicalism isn't a political one, but it's uh, a problem of relating to the work and promise of Christ. It's amazing how you can speak right to my heart. Without saying a word. You can light up the dark Try as I may I can never explain What I hear when you don't say a thing The smile on your face lets me know that you need me There's a truth in your eyes of your hand says you'll catch me wherever I fall you say it best when you say nothing at all all day
catch me wherever I fall You say it best when you say nothing at all 